0: Welcome to Seeds, a show where we talk with people who are living lives of purpose and doing amazing things that make a positive impact in our world. We take time to listen to them as they reflect on their life journeys and what has shaped them into who they are today and what motivates them to be involved in what they do. Well, kiaado everyone. Welcome on to Seeds Podcast. This is Stephen Moe, and I'm really glad you could join me as this episode is one of those bonus ones where we get to hear from three different perspectives. Every month, I've been hosting Impact Calls. And so this month, we had Kate Frickberg, who shares three different stories about her experiences as a Pakeha learning to understand to al Māori. We had Sue Barker sharing about her recent research report, talking about what a world-leading framework for charities law would be. And then we had Justin Stevenson sharing his thoughts about whether governance for charities and not-for-profits is actually harder than for commercial organizations. I know you're going to enjoy these topics, and I wish that we'd had an hour to spend with each of the guest speakers. But this format is done for a purpose, which is to really get a condensed summary of the essence of what that person is thinking. I hope you enjoy it. And if you do, why not hit subscribe and leave a rating and review for the podcast? Also, you might want to check out some of the more than 300 other episodes in the back catalog. Normally, I'm interviewing one person and finding out about their life story and there's heaps more information at theseeds.nz. Finally, if you'd like to join the list of people who get notifications about the calls, then you're welcome to join the more than 700 people. Just reach out and I'll be happy to add you in. Now let's get into this impact call. Hey, well, tēnā no America ho no te, te ko te manga. ko Waitaki toku awa. ko toku Hey, it's great to welcome so many of you to this call. Um, really looking forward to our session today, and a particular welcome to those of you who haven't joined these calls before. So just before we get into our speakers, um, just the background, because um, I know some of you this is the first time that you're you 're joining so these calls started the basically the first week of the original lockdown so we 're going back like two years, and originally, I thought it was going to be like maybe one or two people, uh, and all of a sudden, there was twenty people on the call, and then there was thirty people on the call and it it really became a point of connection during the lockdown. Um, where we could come together and hear different perspectives what people were going through have a bit of a conversation was doing them weekly for a few months and then last year did them every two months and this year doing it every month so that's the um, the intention behind them is how can we connect with each other because ultimately we're an interwoven community and particularly in a small country like New Zealand and sometimes sometimes we end up talking with people who are like us and if you're working as a lawyer you talk to lawyers or if you're working in mental health you talk with other people working in that space so this is a chance to just leave aside wherever you're from hear some perspectives from three different speakers maybe be challenged maybe connect with somebody in the breakouts that we'll do at the end and hopefully have um, learned something through this process of of really valuing community so that's how i view it um so we're going to get into it just before we do that a little update um some of you will be from incorporated societies and i just want to highlight um, we've put up a bunch of resources on our website for incorporated societies the reason i'm mentioning it is is that there's 24,000 incorporated societies and every single one is going to be facing changes so we've written, um, I have Sophie with me here. How many have we written now? Like 10, 15. at least 10 articles on different topics. There she is. <laughs> um, and we've, we're trying to give some helpful information for people because every incorporated society is going to need to make change. So you may be from an incorporated society. You may know somebody that it would be helpful that they know about this resource. So um, when Kate's speaking, I'll put uh, the link in the chat. and. Um, Yeah, we've got three great speakers, quite diverse topics, and we're going to hear from Kate Frickberg first, and then we're going to hear from Sue Barker, and then from Justin Stevenson, and yeah, each of them have a unique perspective, and it's been great to have so much interest in this call and the topic. Um, So... Without further ado we 're going to get into um, hearing from Kate and Kate I in advance really appreciate your uh, vulnerability and willingness to talk about this topic um, because I you know it 's something that i 'm learning about i 'm growing as a pakiha, working in this similar spaces, um, and I think all of us on this call would say that we want to be learning and growing, particularly in this area. Um, so we're really grateful that you're willing to share with us some of your learnings in terms of being pakiha and, and working within that to our Māori world. Um, I'm not gonna give much more of an intro because I would love to hear from your perspective. So I'll hand it over to you. Thank you. Kia
1: ora kito mahi mahi my acknowledgements to you stephen um, arranging this every month um, it's really a, a really useful really cool little little thing that you do um, and my warm greetings to everybody here today So I've been asked to talk on the topic of missteps and learnings, um, experiences of organizations wanting to support Māori aspirations. Um, I feel pretty shy about this because there's about a million ways I can get this wrong. And I apologize in advance um, for whichever of those ways I happen to bump into. Uh, A little bit of background about me. Um, I'm a Hawke's Bay girl, born and raised, lived in Wellington most of my adult life. Three amazing sons. Um, First career in IT, uh, second career in philanthropy. I'm now an independent consultant. Sometimes I work with funders, sometimes I work with uh, community organisations. And over the last year or so, I've had the real privilege of working with Tūmanako Consultants, um, and we have Haimona Waititi, the founder of Tūmanako Consultants, and my colleague Erin matariki Ka on the call today, I think, uh, ngā um, I guess underpinning my career journey, uh, over the last, say, 15 years or so, I've had uh, another journey, which is to try and figure out and explore what it means to be a good Pākehā or a good Pākehā organisation. And I don't have the answers. And I don't even know it's the right question. And even the words, Pākehā, Tangata Tiriti, tawiri. there's a whole other rabbit hole we could go down. But I thought I would share three little stories with you, personal stories of kind of some of the missteps um, in the hope that they might be useful. So story number one, I'll call Tāila Māori. So this is a while ago, it was about 10 or 12 years ago, involved in an um, organisation, like middle-class organisation, and we knew we weren't doing very well at all engaging with Māori, and we wanted to change that. And we didn't quite know how, so we looked around, uh, what are the cool kids doing? Uh, they're engaging a komatua okay, so that's how you do it. So we were very lucky, um, Te Ate gave us two amazing uh, komatua to work with us. And there we were in the boardroom with our first board meeting and I'm cheering and I suddenly think, you know, I actually don't know the role of a komatua really. I'm sure it's more than just opening and closing hui and teaching a thwaiata. And I don't know how to integrate these two amazing people into our board. And I'm not sure anybody in the room kind of did either. So it was super awkward. And we kind of bumbled along on goodwill and open hearts. And you can go quite a long way on a goodwill, but only so far. And eventually, you know, there was kind of relationship tensions because we didn't understand the gift we'd been given. We didn't understand the depths of Wairua and we'd been we'd been offered and there was so little reciprocity that ultimately it was kind of extractive. So if I was doing it over again, uh, well firstly I admit what I didn't know um, and had I done that I probably would have realised that It wasn't a kamata we needed. It was probably Māori board members and Māori staff. Um, But even then, we need to create environments which are conducive to working together. We need to have everybody on board. Uh, We need to have articulated our journey um, and we need to provide um, a space where there's shared aspirations and reciprocal benefit. Story number two. I'll call this one Translate My Name, Please. Um, I am involved in a little philanthropic trust called Tamukuro. It used to be called Think Tank Charitable Trust for no good reason, other than we happen to own a domain name. Spot the geek. <laughs> um, about Well, six or seven years ago, we kind of reinvented the trust to focus solely on supporting the vibrancy of Te Māori and addressing racism. And at the same time, we tried to implement the co-governance thing. So we have two Māori trustees, two Pākehā trustees, and we had our first uh, meeting of the new board, and it was absolutely lovely. And then I said, oh, our name kind of sucks. It'd be great to have a Māori name, which is kind of cheeky. And then I did something even more embarrassing, which I really uh, don't want to admit. I said, Oh, well, I've been learning a bit of Tereo. I think I could translate our name. Wouldn't it be something like He Ipu Fakaro? And there was a silence. And then my friend and colleague, Pekaira, put her hand on mine and said, Kate, leave it with me. And at our next board meeting, she came back with the name Tamukudo, And that refers to the strands of harakeke, or flax, which you can weave together to make something really strong and beautiful, but from many different strands. And I don't think we deserve that name, not the way I (laughs) acted. Um, And I sort of wonder about the whole thing about Pākehā organisations having Māori names. Um if I was doing that again, um, I probably wouldn't ask. Certainly wouldn't try and use my puny rail skills to try and translate anything. Um, and maybe we need to think carefully about having a name in torrell because I think the only authentic way we can do that really is to be gifted a name, and that requires us to deserve it. Story number three are called All I Need Is Cultural Competency and a Little Bit of Reo. Um, So we've probably all been in that situation where you go to a hui and then everybody stands up and does their pepeha and you think, oh, I can't do mine, oh no. So I was in that situation at Todd Foundation when I was there and thought, oh, what do I need? Okay, I need the single cultural competency it's a funny term, cultural competency, like I'm quite competent at Excel spreadsheets, I'm not really sure that I can or should be competent in somebody else's culture. Um, you know, But I did that and then I thought, okay if I'm serious about this I need to really learn Te Reo Māori and I thought, okay, I'll do that for a couple of years and then I'll be fluent and I hope I'm one of the one of the good students in the the class. And both of those kind of thinkings, I think, were wrong um, because I'm never going to be fluent. And I don't think it's useful to go into a te reo Māori class wanting to be a good student. Uh, In fact, there's something ugly, really, about Pākehā who have taken the language then kind of dominating in a te class and making Māori who are trying to reclaim their language feel embarrassed or outshone. So it's kind of tricky. Um, th- it would be wonderful if everybody in Aotearoa spoke both te reo Māori and English. Uh, but I think as Pakea, we have to be careful about how we do this. We, have to, we shouldn't be taking places of Māori if there's not enough spaces and we need to do it with deep humility and an understanding of the troubled history of colonisation and the loss of language. So if I was doing it again, um, I would be thinking cultural safety rather than cultural competency, and actually I would start with pronunciation, so correct or even mostly correct, um, pronunciation of te reo Maori is quite a small thing, and not terribly hard, but actually not terribly common, and it's a way of showing respect. So those are my th- th- three stories. Um, I thought I'd also offer some tips and hints for um, organisations wanting to go on similar journeys. And I'll share my screen. Um, I've run out of time to go through these, um, and there's no one way. There's no, there's no answer. There's no one roadmap, but here's some tips and hints that might be useful. This is adapted by, from a framework called Kitohoi, which Haimono and I um, did for Philanthropy New Zealand for funders. Um, really happy to share this. I can give it to Stephen to share with anybody who's interested. And I hope it's a, a little help. Nō reira. Thank you very much for listening. Nga mihi, mata kuki. Kia koutou katoa.
0: Mada. That's awesome. Thank you very much, Kate. That's really good. I think, I think we could have a whole hour long session. <laughs> I would love to hear more of your stories. Um, I think stories is the way that we learn from each other, isn't it? It's um, it's so powerful rather than um, just being given an article or something, but actually hearing like, this is my lived experience. And I have to say I've, I've had similar experiences to you and that I know that I'm on a journey and I'm learning. Um, I've gotten quite cautious these days. Um, I guess I'll share a little story in that sometimes if I'm at events, I I just worry that we invite somebody on stage to do a karaki or a blessing or, you know, the welcome, but then you look at the panel and it's not very representative. (laughs) And so it's the, the token is there, but not the substance. And I think we have to look at ourselves as organizers of events and as, as things that are going on and say, what's the actual substance that's going on here. Um, Matariki, who's on the call here, we're co-writing a paper right now. And I, I was challenged by her as well in that, in a really positive way, because when we were coming to write the paper, I was approaching it in a Western perspective uh, in that, well, what's the top 10 things, you know, what's the 10 bullet points we can take from this particular thing and actually in writing it, because it's about um, indigenous governance. And we have stepped back and said, actually, part one, we just have to talk about philosophy for a little bit. We have to go right back to the core. We can't just jump and say, well, tip number one, tip number two, we actually have to say there's fundamentally different philosophical frameworks with which we're approaching this, so um, sorry, just to echo your your stories really that um, but it's a learning journey, and I do really um, talk to what you've said and and really appreciate the vulnerability of sharing because those are moments of you know of weakness, and I think that that's important to recognize that it, it's okay to learn and it's okay to get stronger and, and get better so thank you so much, really appreciate it um yeah if you have questions you can put them in the chat and maybe um, kate can have a look at those and respond to those but we are going to keep things moving along so the the beauty of this call is that you hear really different perspectives and hopefully really interesting conversations that you can then take into the weekend and talk with people about something you heard So we're really lucky that Sue Barker is here. Um, And Sue, I just have endless um, admiration for this report that you've put out recently um, because you can remind me, but I think it's close to 600 pages and I've never written a 600 page report. Um, So I would love to hear from you. And I know it's looking particularly at the framework for a charity's law. And you've spent a a long time on this now. So we'd love to hear some of the highlights, some of the things that have stood out to you. um, And I'll pass it over to you. Thank you.
2: Thank you so much, Stephen. Um, Just let me share my screen if I could. And I apologize for the delay while that does this. (laughs) Can you all see that? Awesome. Cool. Thank you. Hopefully, I can. Here we go. Um, so, uh, Te Nā Kōtahitahi. Hello, everyone. Um, thank you for the opportunity to come and chat to you today about the report. Um, some of you may be aware that for the last two years, I have been on sabbatical from legal practice, writing the report um, as the New Zealand Law Foundation International Research Fellow Te a taio, which I'm honoured to say is New Zealand's premier legal research award. The research topic was, what does a world-leading framework of charities law look like? And the final report, Focus on Purpose, was released last month. I'm very grateful to the New Zealand Law Foundation and the many, many others who have supported this work. Not least, because it says that the charitable sector matters, and it is worth taking the time to try to get the legal framework for charities right. The report makes 70 recommendations for charities law reform in Aotearoa, New Zealand including that the government's review of the Charities Act, which is currently on foot, is transferred to the New Zealand Law Commission for an independent and ideally multidisciplinary review, taking into account the wider legal framework for charities. Any review of charities law must extend to issues of concern for the charitable sector, including the definition of charitable purpose, advocacy, agency structure, the wider legal framework and government contracting. If the law commission is not available, other jurisdictions such as Australia, Northern Ireland, and England and Wales have adopted the independent panel model, which I note the New Zealand government has recently done for electoral law. We also strongly recommended recommendation 8.37 that no further piecemeal reform is made to legislation affecting charities in, effect of such, in advance of such an independent first principles review. Further piecemeal reform, entailing alterations to isolated aspects of an interconnected system is unwise. Any proposals for charities law reform must proceed as a whole, and then only with caution and after substantial further consultation. Further specific consultation with Māori is essential. If you made a submission to the government's review of the Charities Act in 2019, you may find yourself quoted or cited in the report. The 363 submissions are a rich source of information as to how the current framework of charities law is working on the ground. And I very much tried to amplify the submissions in the report so that the reader might hear from charities in their own words. The report is book length, uh, 596 pages long, and I make no apologies for that. The push to distill complex issues into easily digestible sound bites. Do charities an enormous disservice, in my view, and contribute to their being overlooked, undervalued, misunderstood, or simply dismissed with a once over lightly. Yet, the issues involved in this area of law go to the heart of the type of society we want to live in. It is very important, in my view, to get the legal framework for charities right. If you've had a chance to have a look at the report, you'll see that Chapter 9 contains a draft bill that would amend and restate the Charities Act. And thank you very much to everyone who... Um, the, the first thing I did as part of the research was draft a bill building on all the work that had been done with the review of the Charities Act to date and building on 20 years of legal practice in this area. And. Um, the idea was to subject that thinking to, to have something tangible and subject that to to challenge over the course of the research, I'm very grateful to who everyone who feedback on the report on the draft bill and the chapter nine. Can, uh, incorporates the comments that we received it's an updated draft um, commentary to the draft bill is contained in chapter eight and chapters one to seven provide the basis on which the various recommendations, have been made, I fully understand how busy everyone is but I would encourage you to read the report, nevertheless, because charities are worth it. I was wondering what I could usefully do in eight minutes, and I thought it might be most helpful to draw your attention to some links. Um, The report itself can be found on the Law Foundation website, that's the link there. The Charity Law Association of Australia and New Zealand very kindly hosted a webinar about the research last week and a recording of the webinar is up on the Charity Law Association website uh, there. Trust, Amoxi- Trust Amoxi are holding a webinar on 22 June, or a discussion about the research. Uh, business Desk, you will have noticed, are doing a project about charities, and they have published a couple of articles about the research, which can be found there. Uh, there is a website dedicated to the re- research, charitieslawreform.nz, and there's a facility there to sign up for, for updates if you're interested. We also have a LinkedIn group and a Facebook page, um, and either or both of which everyone here is very welcome to join. I would also like to draw your attention to the last link, which is an article about Confucius Institute. And I don't know if I've got time, Stephen, but if I do, I'd just like to draw attention to another point quite quickly, if I could, hopefully. Um, So I just wanted to talk about the Charities Act Review that is on foot. The Minister for the Community and Voluntary Sector is being reported in the media as saying that she wants a Charities Amendment Bill introduced into Parliament later this year. I understand that these comments were made before the report was released on 19 April and that the Minister has asked for a a briefing on the report. We have no visibility at this stage as to what such a Charities Bill might contain, but I was just working through potential scenarios in my mind and If the minister were to continue along the lines revealed by the targeted uh, consultation undertaken last year, such a bill is likely to implement a substantial increase in charity services' regulatory powers, despite an absence of any empirical evidence of any need for such powers, and with no corresponding checks or balances on such power. The comment on the DIA website that the idea is to address practical day-to-day process and transparency issues faced by the charitable sector to allow charities to focus on working with communities is, with great respect, very misleading. Indications to date are that any such bill will not address any issues of concern for the charitable sector and will more likely act perversely to preclude the sector's real issues from being addressed. To make matters worse, as part of the research, I have looked quite closely at the interplay between the work of the Tax Working Group and the Charities Act Review, and I am very concerned that any such charities bill will be followed by tax legislation that will potentially remove charities exemption from income tax for business income, potentially as a precursor to removing charities exemption from income tax altogether. All of this would make it considerably more difficult for charities to carry out their work at a time when it is never more needed. And as discussed in the report, if the Canadian experience is anything to go by, once unhelpful legislation is in place, it can be many decades before it is able to be turned around, if ever. Canada is described as having been on a 40-year odyssey and is only now with recent developments such as the appointment of an advisory committee on the charitable sector starting to turn around some very unhelpful legislation that has been in place for decades. Wouldn't it be nice if we could learn from the experience of other jurisdictions and not make the same mistakes in the first place. The New Zealand charitable sector has a very good track record in having unhelpful unhelpful proposed legislation turned around at select committee stage. And even though Labor currently has an absolute majority, I'm sure the Minister would not want to put herself into conflict with the charitable sector in the lead up to the 2023 election. However, it would be infinitely preferable for any bill introduced into Parliament to have the support of the charitable sector in the first place rather than needing to be hastily rewritten during the parliamentary process. Because there is an underlying paradigm that permeates this area of law. It manifests itself in a number of ways, and this is just one slide, there's a whole other slide which I haven't included. But basically one paradigm sees charities basically, or the tax tax privileges for charities as effectively equivalent to government grants, over which government would want to exercise almost complete control. This paradigm sees charities effectively as a service delivery arm of government and aims to restrict what charities can do and say so that they are effectively limited to furthering government objectives. Interestingly, this is, I understand, the policy of the Chinese Communist Party in relation to its 2016 charity law, a policy which is described as more third sector, less civil society and is based on a view of the charitable sector as purely service-orientated and not as key instruments of social change. Whereas the other paradigm sees charities' and independence as their hallmark and key to what makes them distinctive and valuable. Charities' and independence enables them to take risks, experiment, innovate, and reach into communities in ways that government cannot. At the risk of oversimplification, one paradigm seeks to restrict charities and the other seeks to enable their work. I'm very concerned that what is being proposed behind closed doors would cement a very restrictive paradigm before we have even had a chance to evaluate as a society which paradigm would be most appropriate for New Zealand. A country with a government focused on well-being, with a project to bolster social cohesion, The potential for charities to help in almost every area government wants to focus on, including child poverty, health, education, rising inequality, climate change, biodiversity loss, affordable housing, you name it, appears to have been entirely overlooked. And the narrow paradigm is playing out in increasing authoritarianism around the world. The number of uh, democracies backsliding into authoritarianism has doubled in the past decade. Apparently 90% 90% of the world's population is now living in countries rated as obstructed, repressed, or closed. Even Australia and much of Europe are rated as narrowed. Add to the forces at work trying to destabilise democracy from within, this century is becoming a contest between open liberal democracies and closed authoritarian regimes. Russia has expansionist ambitions, as we have seen, and China has them too. China is aggressively expanding its authoritarian influence overseas, as we can see in Myanmar, Solomon Islands, Samoa, Tonga, Fiji, the Philippines, Hong Kong, Kiribati, you name it. It may use education as a tool in this regard, and I I, I, um, would draw your attention to the Confucius Institute article at the bottom of the links page. I was very surprised in carrying out the research at how many people were questioning whether freedom of expression, even liberal democracy itself, were things worth having. having. In times of uncertainty, people innately look for strong leadership, but what we really need are strong communities. In my view, A world-leading framework of charities law would boldly uphold liberal democratic values of social tolerance, freedom of expression, freedom of association, the rule of law. It must recognise charities' important role in a liberal democracy and protect their independence and their ability to advocate fearlessly for their charitable purposes. Because it's important to know that a restrictive command and control paradigm is expensive, not only in terms of compliance, administration and litigation costs, but hidden costs such as damage to independence, goodwill, trust and confidence, and New Zealand's culture of volunteering. After 14 years and many millions of dollars of regulation, public trust and confidence has in fact declined. Research indicates that public trust and confidence in charities is not driven by heavy-handed regulation. It's driven by charities themselves, and in particular by their purposes. We saw during COVID how effective and efficient a trust-based approach can be. Regulation cannot be an end in itself. We must take care not to create regulation for regulation's sake. At the very very least, it's necessary to be conscious, open, and consultative about which paradigm is chosen and why, because otherwise, we end up being a frog in boiling water. (laughs) That's all. Thank you.
0: That's great. Thank you so much, Sue. I I realize that it's difficult to condense all that you've done into a short (laughs) little conversation. But you know what? The the point is that people now know that the resource is there and not everyone on the call would have been aware. So that's part of the purpose of the calls is just to give a little slice. And then people I put a link to the report in the chat so people can click. They can find out more. And I'm sure I know that you're passionate about this subject and you're always open to conversations. So um, we've got uh, at this point about 40 people who've now downloaded and maybe hadn't been as aware as they were. Uh, so that's really awesome. Thank you very much. I really appreciate it. Um, so part of the part of the purpose of the calls is to um, hear these diverse perspectives. So. We're going to finish off by hearing another perspective. Um, And this is from Justin. And Justin is also based in Otatahi Christchurch. So we see each other quite often at various governance and different related events. Um, But I'm really grateful because he came forward and running these calls, like it's, I view myself just as a little part of it, you know, a little catalyst to make them happen. So Justin approached me after the last one and said, Uh, Actually, there was a good conversation going in the breakout room. I'd like to continue it in the next call. So I really appreciated his um, proactivity there in um, letting me know that. And so I said, that would be great. And the topic uh, in particular, I'll let him go into it, but it's looking at governance in mainstream business versus charities. So what we're going to do is hear from him with some thoughts and reflections on this topic. And then what I'm going to do is send you into different breakout rooms to reflect and have conversations. And the purpose of breakout rooms is that I don't want this, these sessions just to be a screen that we're watching. So as much as we can use technology, I love the idea that you'll have interacted with at least one other person and seen a real human and had a conversation, Um, because it's not just a case of watching. It's also thinking and, and talking and actually several times i've had people afterwards say that they've made a connection in the breakout room that then is leading to some new initiative or some thing that they hadn't been aware of before the call so um justin i'm gonna hand over to you and you can guide us through your thoughts about this topic and then we'll go into the breakout rooms thank you
3: good afternoon everyone um from chile about sunny christchurch uh, i'll just share my screen um, Good. Um, so this, yeah, as I say, this was a bit of an experiment that I threw at um, Stephen. Um, in the previous uh, discussion, I ended up being in a breakout group with KP, uh, the um, CEO of the Institute of Directors, and I cheekily asked, uh, did she think that um, not-for-profit governance might actually be harder than commercial governance? And uh, partially that was because I'd actually done some thinking about this topic. Um, and uh, and it's ended up being uh, an article I've written has been redrafted and will hopefully be published with the IOD next week. So you guys, this is a sort of a crash course into that article. Um, but the article is, the, the topic is supposed to be, in this, particularly in this particular setting, um, it's a hypothesis. Um, I'm hoping to get some good responses from you guys. Some of you will agree with it, some of you won't. Um, but hopefully it will stimulate the discussion in each group. Um just before we start, this is um, how I sort of generally introduce myself in these situations. Um, uh, just a, a montage of sort of the life. Um, so I actually come from the Kapiti Coast, uh, north of Wellington. Uh, and um, I come from a family that has been involved with um, internet um, aid work overseas, particularly from a medical space. Um, in the top corner over here, on the top right corner is my parents in the highlands of Papua New Guinea with my sister. Uh, back in the 60s. Um I also spent some time in the Philippines um, and went to school over there. So sort of the aid, aid sort of work has been part of my life. Uh, I went to Wellington College, which being in Christchurch, that's quite an important question. Um, it's not so important for me, but for people in Christchurch it seems to ring true for feel. Um, and went to but I went to Canterbury University and did uh, mechanical engineering. Uh, I drifted into a PhD uh uh, partly and then my supervisor is a guy called Keith Alexander who designed the spring for trampolines so he was into product innovation that sounded cool so I got into that with the company technologies uh, I married my wife down in Christchurch and in a fit of madness we bought a lingerie store uh, down here um, and then our building got fell over in the earthquake um, and so I got involved with the rebuild of Christchurch um, now only lingerie store means that I don't have a hands-on role for a long time, so I spend a lot of time on my bike with my dog on a bucket bike, but I also try to get involved with uh, charitable governance. Um, so that, just, that gives you some ideas about some of the areas I've been involved in. Uh, so the hypothesis for the discussion is essentially that not-for-profit governance and management is really hard. Um, and partly this is from my own experience, having uh, had a few torrid experience, Experiences in the not-for-profit space Uh, have been a bit confused by that, Um, but then also at the same time reading quite a few articles about other people who had also had, who'd come from a commercial space and been successful there, gone into the not-for-profit space to give back to the community and had essentially been burnt out by the whole experience. And I began to wonder, okay, is there something else going on here? Um, And so I think it is harder than commercial governance. Um, I think, and I think there are. It's hard even when you take into account the respective difficulties of each sector. So, you know, so each sector, even, even in commercial governance, is obviously harder roles. But if you compare organizations of a reasonably similar level, I would say that not for profit governance is harder than commercial governance. And I think there are structural reasons why. Um, now, you could go into a discussion group and discuss just that hypothesis, but I, the structural reasons are one of the things I'd like you to talk about. Um, because I think fundamentally, for me, not-for-profits, I think I'm missing some key feedback loops that are present naturally in a commercial setting. So a feedback loop's pretty good. Tells you when you're going right or wrong so that you can change course. So we utilize them all the time. Um, but they're really good when they're natural, i.e. you don't really have to invent them, um, and they're hard to ignore. Um, if one of those two things is missing, they're not quite as effective. Uh, So the key feedback loops, well, some of the key feedback loops that I think are missing in the not-for-profit sector uh, that make it vulnerable compared to the commercial sector, uh, well, these are them, um, and some of you will agree with these and some of you won't, and there are various degrees within the not-for-profit space, so these are broad headings, trying to be relatively um, confrontational, so hopefully the discussion is quite good, Uh, but the first one is, not for profits don't really have customers or often don't have customers in the true sense of the word. Um, customers are pretty brutal in a commercial environment. Um, they either buy what you, you're offering or they don't, and you can't really force them. Um, but if they don't buy what you want, you've got a pretty big incentive to figure out what they do want and, and try and change your business accordingly. Whereas in a not for profit space, that feedback loop's a bit, well, it's either Non existent in some cases, but even or a bit hazy. Um, you know, obviously, there's a spectrum of not for profits and their interactions with customers, but you know, lots of them, there's not a really clear link between who's paying for the service and who's actually receiving it. Um, so it can be a real challenge to figure out whether or not you're actually giving people what they really want. Um, and that's a massive thing which impacts on the not for profit space. You know, if I, only had, if I was only talking about one feedback loop, that would probably be my choice. Uh, I think that it's incredibly prevalent. Um, so that's so that's one. Uh, the second one, you know, by their very definition, not-for-profits don't have a profit motive. That's one of the things we think is a positive thing. Um, but it's interesting. Not-for-profit uh, motives do introduce an interesting feedback loop in two key ways for me. First of all. Um, it does help you identify whether you're actually meeting customer needs, as we just discovered. You know, if you can't sell for profit, um, there's a bit of a problem there. Um, but the other thing is that a profit motive sets up what I call a natural opportunity cost debate, because if you make a profit in a business, the directors have two choices all the time. They either can reinvest that money back in the business to make it more profitable, or they can pay it out and the shareholders can use it for something else. And that decision is always there, and both of those good options are always under challenge. So there's a constant incentive to make sure that you're actually using the stuff in the right way, in the right place, going to the right position. Now, uh, I wouldn't say that's necessarily the greatest opportunity cost debate, uh, but at least it's an opportunity cost debate. Um, I frequently find, in a particularly in the charitable sector, and probably not, is that there's a lot of momentum to continue to do whatever program is currently on the cards, as opposed to asking the question, is what we currently do the best thing that we can actually be doing at the moment? And that discussion is a very, very hard to have. Um, that may be my experience, other views might be able to share, um, but that's certainly a major a feedback loop for me. And it's so major, in fact, that just a bit of a plug for my own work, um, that uh, I developed a thing called the Social Dividend Model, which is a way for to improve the strategic use of your uh, financial reporting when profit isn't your purpose. And that may be a discussion for another day, Stephen, but it's a bit of a plug for me. And, and thank you to Craig Fisher, who I think is still on the call. He's been a huge supporter of that. Uh, the third feedback loop is they don't really have shareholders, uh, which is often a great thing in some ways, but also means that the accountability structure is a bit woolly. Um, yeah, in theory, you're accountability, accountable to the trustee or various things like that, but they're not really quite as rigorous as someone who's got a financial stake in the decisions that you're making, and they probably won't fire you for bad performance. Um, so, and I, I think also fun, it's very hard to imagine a uh, a, a, a stakeholder or even another group who actually was prepared to stand up and rescue a not-for-profit if it gets into trouble. Um, it takes quite a lot of effort to do that. And if you're not really incentivized, it's unlucky, it's, you, it can happen, but there is a chance you're going to miss out on that feedback loop. Uh, interestingly, one of the th- things ways this sort of displays itself uh, that makes charitable governance hard is that there seems to be a lot, endless consultation involved in charitable and not-for-profit governance. Because often the shareholders get taken replaced by what I call more mimicked by other people who think they have a stake in the business often volunteers or staff who have been working diligently in the business often at lower wages than they might have otherwise got they have a they have a say in the organization greater than you might have expected similar positions in a commercial environment and so therefore they do have an interest in being consulted. Uh, The final one I'm going to talk about is that they don't really have a clear signal to end. Uh, In a business, if you don't meet the customer's needs, you're likely to go bankrupt. Uh, You're incentivized to get out early um, and uh, hopefully uh, put the funds available to and the time available to somewhere where it could be used better. Um, There is a lot of charities on the Charities Register in New Zealand. uh, And I think part of the reason is there isn't a clear way to actually clear those charities out that aren't really meeting the needs of the time, um, because it's actually quite hard to end one from an emotional perspective. Someone's got to step up and say actually this charity which was set up to do really good stuff and great stuff is not actually working. I'm going to be the nasty person and shut this down. Uh, but I actually think they're really true governance heroes that people are prepared to actually stand up and do that. Um, so therefore, feedback loops for I've identified. Um, they variously relevant in different organizations, but I think you may hopefully have identified some things. But some people sort of say to me, oh, I don't think it's a big deal. And, and so I want to say, look, don't underestimate feedback loops. And I'm going to give you a sort of another example, which is completely outside the sector of when what happens when the feedback loops aren't present. What can happen? And that is, um, I want you guys to consider the disease leprosy. Uh, most of you will know about leprosy. Most of you will know about um, that causes quite a lot of disfigurement and social isolation. It's been a, a highly stigmatized disease for centuries, or forever, basically. Um, and I'm going to show you a picture of someone's hands who has uh, who has had leprosy. It's a little bit squeamish, so I won't leave it up for long. Um, but uh, so that's a woman in Bangladesh. A friend of mine happened to be the managed the leprosy mission in Bangladesh, and that was the hands of one of his patients. And you can see there's significant deformation deformity there Um, now most people for for pretty much all of human history thought that leprosy caused this as it happens leprosy didn't cause this what leprosy did it killed the nerve endings in that woman's hands so she couldn't feel pain and pain is actually a brilliant feedback loop and that it protects you when something's when it's something's too hot or you're gripping it too tightly or you're injured that you naturally protect yourself from causing damage, and when you can't feel pain, this is the result or something similar. So it's, it's a, pain is actually this. It's not leprosy. Le, this woman was cured of leprosy, but yet she still endured this disfigurement. So that's an indication of what can happen when feedback loops are there. And I think something similar is going on in the not-for-profit space. In that, without without the with hazy or missing feedback loops, it's hard because a you have to create and mimic those feedback loops. Um, That's quite a lot of hard work. Um, You have to actively listen and act on the information they provide, and that's quite hard work as well. Um, And this doesn't happen naturally, whereas you naturally respond to pain, you naturally respond to all those feedback loops which are present in the commercial commercial setting. You don't within the not-for-profit sector. And you have to realize that you're feeling pain even though you can't feel it. And that's one of the things that is that I often say people, look, you know, if you, if you think not-for-profit governance is easy, is it because you're not actually feeling the pain signals that are there? Um, and that it actually is harder than you think it is. It's just you're not actually feeling the pain signals. Right, so it's end to me. Some of you will agree with that or not. Um, so for the discussion, the question is, does this ring true or not? Now, trust me, I've given this discussion to other people. The opinions have ranged from this person is reading my mind right through to, this is not relevant at all. So I'm fully prepared to accept that there's a full spectrum there. Um, but And if it isn't true in your group, and your breakout group that Stephen's gonna send you into, um, decides that it's all completely irrelevant, we'll have a good discussion and get to know each other very well. But if it is true, what's the implications of this uh, in terms of how we train not-for-profit governance, uh, remuneration, the prestige and promotion, uh, any specific tools, like the one I was talking about. But finally, in the IOD, it's not explicitly stated, um, and they would, they would be annoyed if I said it was, but there is sort of an implication that not-for-profit governance is a step towards commercial governance. It's the way to get training and experience in your, in your journey, in your governance journey. And my argument is that perhaps it should be the other way around, that commercial governance is actually the step towards not-for-profit governance. And that rather than throwing people in the deep end with not-for-profit governance positions, we realize that actually that's the, really the hard end of the story. Um, and how would that change if we actually viewed it that way rather than the other way? Anyway, that's me, Stephen. I'll let you take over from there.
0: That's great. Thank you so much. Um, I feel so guilty now because all three speakers have been so good. We could have had them each share for an hour. I'm sure you agree. <laughs> um, just maybe you can... Close that screen, and then I'll keep going. Thank you. Um, yeah, I mean, each of you have brought so much content and quality there. Thank you so much to to Kate, to Sue, and and to Justin. So I am going to send you to breakout rooms. Um, just before we do that, I'm really keen to hear from others who would like to share on this call. I mean, uh, this is a call out to all of you. If you'd like to share something, then just let me know, and we can work out if when it would fit. Um, I'll keep doing this through the year. Um, and the second thing is. Because I'll stop recording soon if any of you um, enjoyed this call then please consider sharing it with others when I send out the link to it and some more follow-up information Um, there's more than 700 people that get the email now Um, so it'd be great to continue allowing people to think about these topics and um, I think they're really really challenging so thank you so much so it looks like there's about 35 of you now so I think we want enough Small enough groups where you're each going to be able to share. Um, so if you're not going to stay, why don't you drop off? And I know people have things at, at one o'clock that they'll need to go to. Um, but I will go ahead and create these rooms. Um, when we're done, um, we'll join back in, but I think we probably won't have time to sort of have a long feedback on it. Um, we'll just see how we go. But I'll send you to some rooms and um, have a conversation. I'll bring you back in about 10 minutes. Well, I do hope you enjoyed that impact call. There was obviously a lot of highlights there. I really appreciated Kate, Sue, and Justin's insights. And I hope that some of what they shared was a challenge to maybe how you've thought of things in the past. Make sure to check out the show notes for links and let me know if you'd like to join the email list so that you can get notifications about these calls in the future. Until next time.